Well, hey, Vintage, it's good to see you. And we believe God right now is calling us to a season and a journey of deeper discipleship to go into a season of growing in Christ in a significant way, in deeper ways. I told a story last week of one I heard from John Tyson, our friend over at Church of the City in New York, where he recounted the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 1930s in Germany, where he set up on the outskirts of town a seminary for young men to be discipled in the ways of Christ. And he was radical, man. He was really in-depth about it. And a few of the people went, whoa, hang on, Dietrich, this is a bit too intense. I mean, this is all in. This is a bit radical. Dietrich responded to that by taking some of these people over the hill and pointing out a training camp for the Nazi regime. And he could see how intense their discipleship was in the Nazi values and the regime and Dietrich looked at these men and just said when it comes to our discipleship when it comes to what we're doing this must be stronger than that this what we're doing must be stronger than the way this culture is discipling our society our young men and women we must be followers of Jesus in all things to withstand the discipleship forces of our culture and we are living in one of those moments where we too are living in a culture where there are strong forces to disciple us away from the things of Jesus. We are living in a post-Christendom or Christian society. We're living in the age of secularism. And on the West Coast, we're living in the religion of pluralism, syncretism, where Jesus is one of many and not the only. And so we're living in these new dynamics for many of us and rather than getting upset by it rather than getting disoriented by it actually God is calling us to a deeper discipleship where we might retain and regain in some ways our saltiness that we might be salt and light in the world and so we're going on a journey this fall in a new sermon series a series about deeper discipleship beginning today we'll be studying the book of Matthew with the title, The Gospel of Matthew, The Call to Deeper Discipleship. The Call to Deeper Discipleship. Where we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus through this text, through this book, and invite him to shape us, grow us, challenge us. You know that verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Timothy describes scripture like this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We love that first bit, don't we? Where all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. But he doesn't end there. He says it's also helpful for rebuking and correcting and training to do stuff. And this is what the deep discipleship journey is all about. We sit at the feet of Jesus through his word and invite him to teach us, to rebuke us, to challenge us, to correct us and to train us. So as we go on this journey, I invite you to lean in with me, to lean in, to open our lives to a journey of deeper discipleship. We'll be 
recommending resources, Bible study guides and commentaries that you can read more on your own time as we go through this together. Watch out for this Tuesday's email newsletter. I'll give you more kind of reading to do, a, a companion guide, so to speak. But this morning, what I want to do is a bit different because I want to just give you an overview of the book of Matthew before we dive deep in chapter one next week. I want to give you the background of Matthew and then I want to give you the two main themes of what Matthew is trying to do to be the foundational principles of discipleship. First of all, just the background. Who is Matthew? Who is Matthew? Well, Matthew was one of the 12 disciples following Jesus in his early ministry. He was also known by another name called Levi, and he was a former tax collector, which in those days was a disreputable job because it was um, coming alongside the oppressive Roman Empire and to help them overtax the Jewish people. So in many ways, Matthew was seen before his conversion to Christ as a traitor to his people, colluding with the oppressive taxation system of the Roman Empire. But he was one of the early disciples and followers of Jesus. Why is it called the Gospel of Matthew? Have you ever thought about why the word gospel? Well, the word gospel in Greek is to announce good news. It's not just good news, it's the announcement of it, particularly in political and royal themes. It wasn't, hey, good news, I've just bought a Tesla or something like that. It was reserved for moments of political and royal importance. So when a king would go to a foreign land and win a battle, they would send back a rider to announce the good news. And this, was, this person was announcing, using the same word here as gospel, the gospel of a victory of the king elsewhere. This is the same word here as the gospel of Matthew. Matthew didn't actually entitle his book the gospel, but by the second century, all of these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were titled the gospel of because the church recognized that these books were heralding, announcing the good news of political and royal importance. The good news that Jesus has come as the king of the world. So that's why it was called gospel. And as I said just there, there were four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written in the second half of the first century. Mark, we think, was written first. It's the shortest and written first around AD 60, followed by Matthew and Luke, and then John, all between like 60 and 90 AD. And in fact, when Matthew decided to write his gospel, he collected material that he could then expand on and write about the life of Jesus. And one of the materials he used was the Gospel of Mark. 90% of the book of Mark is part of Matthew's Gospel. So when you're reading Matthew's Gospel and you go, hang on a minute, this sounds like Mark. It is because Matthew used the majority of Mark, but then added more his own recollections, other oral histories and traditions of stories about Jesus that were seen to be true. And he added to Mark's Gospel to paint a bigger story, a bigger insight into the life of Jesus. This is why we have four Gospels. The Holy Spirit decided to give us four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because ultimately the Gospels and the type of literature they are, they're not simply journalistic biographies of someone's life. 
Each of these authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is more a theologian than a journalist. They are wanting us to see truths about Jesus through the historical accounts of his life. They each have a different theme they want to emphasize. They each want to show us something a bit different about Jesus. It's like a diamond with different facets. They want to show a different facet of the one Jesus. And so Matthew here is wanting to show us something particular about Jesus. And all of them, if you read all of the four Gospels, you'll see that many same stories, of course, all talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But they sometimes reorder the material in a different way. They sometimes pick and choose different things in order to celebrate one particular aspect of who Jesus is. It's kind of like biographies that we might read today. Say, let's pick a famous uh, celebrity, maybe Winston Churchill, for example. Lots of biographies about Winston Churchill. Uh, but if an author's going, you know, I want to celebrate Winston as a great orator, then he would pick bits and pieces from his life, maybe not in chronological order, to paint the picture of who Winston is as a great orator. The same thing as a comedian, the same thing as a poet, which he was. And that's what is going on here. The Holy Spirit is, is inspiring these authors to show us theologically who Jesus is. And the richness of why he came. So why did Matthew write the gospel? What is it that Matthew is trying to get across? Well, the clue is at the end of Matthew's gospel, where he writes at the very end, the last paragraph of his book is what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Scholars agree that this ending paragraph gives us the insight into why Matthew wrote his gospel that the last command that Jesus gives to his disciples is to go and make disciples. And Matthew is therefore trying to give us the tools to make disciples. That when we're thinking, well, how do we do this discipleship making? Matthew writes a gospel and says, this is your disciple manual. This is your toolkit. That when you're going to sit down with someone to make disciples, read through this. It's the first ever Bible study on the life of Jesus, the discipleship study on the life of Jesus. And Matthew, as a tax collector, goes out of his way to get all the material he can and put it in order and make it so practical for everyday life. So it covers the how-tos of how do we overcome anxiety? How do we overcome grief? How do we pray? This is very practical. It's also about everyday life. There's all sorts of teachings from Jesus in here about marriage and taxes and politics and your job and vocation and your kids. This is the first ever discipleship manual for the Christian life. That when they hear the commission, when you and I hear the commission to go and make disciples, we have already the manual to do so. And I want to look as we just 
give an overview today of two of the main themes of discipleship and the foundations of discipleship in this manual. That this manual of discipleship is founded on two pillars. That these are the pillars that Matthew wants to drill into us that form the basis of our discipleship. These two pillars are this. Discipleship begins when you understand the real Jesus. When you understand the real Jesus. And secondly, discipleship begins when you understand the real story. The real story. Let's look briefly at these two things. The first is, discipleship begins when we understand the real Jesus. Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians at the time, and he goes out of his way in the whole book to make sure they understand exactly who Jesus is. That they don't redefine him, they don't dilute him, they're not confused, because discipleship begins with understanding who the real Jesus is. How you respond, how you live, how you listen to Jesus, how you um, respond to his teachings will all depend on who you think he is. If you get his identity wrong, then your discipleship will be wrong. We begin by understanding who the real Jesus is. It's so easy, isn't it, to get someone's identity wrong. I remember when I was at law school, the summer before my final year of law school, I took an internship in a fairly big law firm in London. And it was a three-week internship, fabulous time. At the end of the internship, we had a big celebration party, drinks party on kind of the top floor of 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 the law firm building. And it was an incredible event. But I was pretty tired at the time. I remember going into the room. I didn't want to schmooze. I didn't want to network. And so I just hung back in the corner where all the tables and the staff were serving the food and the drinks. I just thought, you know, I'm going to just stay here and sit uh, and stand. I mean, just talk to one of the waiters. And I had a great conversation with one of the waiters. It was brilliant. We just swapped stories. Um, and every now and again, I'd say, hey, mate, can, can you get me a drink? And um, there was some amazing food. I mean, mate, you couldn't get me some of that food, could you? And he was incredibly helpful and really nice guy. And we talked for about 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden, the managing partner of the law firm got on kind of a stage to officially thank the interns and end the internship program. It was all very nice. And, and then he said, I just want to introduce, we have a very special guest who's been away for a, a while. And the senior partner of the global law firm is, is with us this evening. And I'd like to invite him up. And we all clapped. And to my surprise, like, the waiter next to me kind of started to walk towards the stage. You know, and as he walked, he kind of gave me another drink and winked at me and then walked upon the stage and then grabbed the microphone and to my shock the waiter was the global senior partner of the law firm and I was treating him as a waiter all the time he was the most important person in the room he was in charge he had the complete authority and he let me go on that way for quite a while. I remember his wry smile, but I had completely got it wrong. I felt like that was the end of any chance of a job at this law firm. Uh, I actually got a job. Amazing. I don't know how I got that. But it's so easy to get someone's identity wrong. And that affects how you treat them, how you listen to them. And in that sense, Matthew says, I want you to know exactly who this real Jesus is. I want you to get his identity right because your discipleship depends on exactly who you think he is. 
So Matthew, in all of his gospel, goes out of his way to prove every single page of his gospel. He proves to these Christians that Jesus is the king that the Old Testament has prophesied would one day come. That these Jewish Christians in Rome who were suffering were probably being tempted to think, I don't know, is this really the king we're waiting for? See, all of the Old Testament had said that one day a king and a leader who would be better than Moses, better than David, better than all the kings of the Old Testament, there would come, one person would come and he would be divine and he would bring the breakthrough that they were hoping for. That he would bring true peace. He would bring true healing to this broken world. Not only to God's people, but to all nations. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And suddenly Jesus arrives. And I'm sure at times they're thinking, have we got this right? Is this the king we're waiting for? And every page of Matthew's gospel, Matthew goes out of his way to say, yes, this is the king we're waiting for. This is the real Jesus. He's not just a wise man. He's not just a guru. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just a waiter. He is the true king. He does this in creative literary ways, which we'll see as we study the book together. So right at the very beginning, he opens his gospel with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He says it straight away. This is the guy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He goes there straight away and goes, this is the real Jesus. He's not some kind of imposter. He's not some kind of sage. He is the true Messiah. This is different to Luke's gospel, where Luke also puts a genealogy in his gospel in Luke chapter 3. But Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. He doesn't stop with the Israelite people. He goes all the way through to Adam because Luke's agenda is to show that Jesus is the king not just of God's people of Israel but for the whole world but Matthew wants to show that this is the king that the Old Testament prophesies about the son of Abraham son of David the true Messiah this is why almost every chapter also Matthew points out that what Jesus does and did fulfills the Old Testament so there's this literary refrain, almost every paragraph, where he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and then he quotes some prophecy in the Old Testament. You see, Matthew is desperate to say, guys, when we're listening to this guy's teaching, when you're thinking of worshipping him, don't, don't forget who he really is. He is the king of all kings. He's the one we've been waiting for. And what's interesting, we don't have time now to look at it, but the whole structure of the book is there to show us that Jesus is the new and better Moses that the people of God were waiting for. It had been prophesied that just as Moses had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, that there would be a global rescue from the sin, from the slavery of sin to the promised land of heaven. And the whole structure of the book is there designed to show that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And I wish I could have time now to show you that, and we'll get into that as we look at the book together. But our discipleship begins with understanding the real Jesus. I think that message is just as important to us as it is to the first century. You see, our culture, the culture of Los Angeles, is constantly trying to get us to redefine and reduce who Jesus is that we constantly have to remind ourselves who Jesus 
truly is against the onslaught of the culture around us. You see, if it was up to the culture around us, we would reduce and redefine Jesus to just a really great example of love or a great teacher, a social justice warrior, or maybe just an idealized version of who we want to be. We make Jesus into our own image. It was Anne Lamott who said, you can safely assume that you've created Jesus in your own image when it turns out that Jesus hates all the same people you do. <laughs> you see, that's the culture around us, isn't it? Trying to make him not a king, but a consultant. Trying to make him not a savior, but a sage. Trying to make him not God, but just one of many gurus. But see, if we don't actually look at who Jesus is for who Jesus says he is, then our discipleship will be shallow. Our discipleship will blend into the culture around us. I want to challenge us as we read this book together. Do you see the real Jesus? The one who not only encourages you, but you give him permission because he's God to correct you. The one you give permission to tell you what to do because he's king. That demands not just agreement, but obedience. The one who you feel is gracious and not shameful and harmful. All these things we're going to discover as we look at Matthew's gospel together, that this is the real Jesus and our lives respond accordingly. Let's humble ourselves as we look at this book to see how we have warped Jesus into our own image or warped Jesus into the image of culture. Discipleship begins with understanding the real Jesus. And then secondly, discipleship begins with understanding the real story. Again, Matthew opens up his gospel with, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you didn't know anything about the Old Testament, you'd be completely lost. And that's intentionally so, because Matthew is intentionally writing kind of chapter two with the Old Testament as chapter one. That Matthew is going out of his way to say, look, as a follower of Jesus, you are stepping into a story that began way before you. That this book of the Old Testament tells us this great story of what God has been doing all the way since Genesis chapter 3 to fix the mess that happened in Genesis 1 and 2. And you are entering into this salvation redemptive story that began way long ago and it's going to continue a long in time in the future and you have a particular role to play, a particular role to play in this story that is eternal and unstoppable. You see, Matthew intentionally wants them to root their lives, not in the story of society, but into the story of God's redemptive purposes in the world. That the Old Testament prophesied that God himself would come as the king to heal, renew, and fix. And that he would pave the way like a new Moses to lead his people out of the sin of slavery through the baptism waters of the Red Sea and to the promised land of the kingdom of God in heaven. That this is the great story that we're all caught up in. And discipleship begins... For Matthew and understanding, this is the story and discipleship is to reorient your life around your role to play in this story. You see, there are many stories that we fall into in life and our culture gives us 
a pretty consistent story of your life, that this is why you exist, this is why you're here. One philosopher put it like this, the story of your life is simply this, two words, project self. Project self. Where for 80, 90, 100 years that you orient your circumstances, you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure around making much of yourself, your own well-being, the pursuit of happiness, that you live every day to maximize your well-being. You use others. You use your circumstances to have the best possible life for yourself. Isn't that the story of our city? Isn't that the story of how, if we're not careful, culture is saying this is the story in which you are to live. But Matthew says discipleship begins with realizing that's a false narrative. That's an empty narrative. That's not why you were created. But actually you were created to take your part in this bigger story, the story that started with Abraham and David and Moses that carried on through Jesus Christ and then he ascended to the Father and now gives us our instructions to go make disciples of all nations. This is the story you are to step into. This is the story that defines how you spend your time, talent and treasure. This is the story that defines your relationships. This is the story that defines your ambitions and your goals. See, once you understand the story, you can then be deeply discipled into it. Don't understand the story and you'll be deeply discipled into a different story. Discipleship begins with understanding the salvation moment of history that you were born into. That every day we wake up as Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of Matthew and we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That every day that we realize that God's designed me for this moment in this chapter of salvation history because he has chosen me to carry forward the purposes of God. That every day we remember that Jesus has given us our marching orders to go and make disciples. That every day we know one day this chapter will end and we will see Jesus face to face where we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And then one day he will come back and call time on the brokenness of this world and the victory that he begun in the cross will be fully complete in our world and the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see why it's so important for Matthew to go, do you see the big story? Because if you're not captivated by the big story, you will be consumed with smaller false ones. And it's the same thing for us in our city. As we go through this book together, we remind ourselves, I'm in a story. The real story. The eternal, unstoppable story. I've got a part to play. And discipleship is, is reorienting my life around playing the part that God has given me in his eternal story of the kingdom of God and the renewal of all things. This is what discipleship is. This is the book of Matthew. I'm gonna pray for us now as we begin this journey together, that we go deep into discipleship and we reorient our lives in response to the real Jesus and we recalibrate our lives around the real story of what is going on in this world. And it's the story of Jesus. Let's pray together. So Jesus, as we take this journey, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will teach us, you will rebuke us,
you will correct us and you will train us. That you will reveal who you really are, that you'll correct the blind spots that maybe have reduced or redefined you for our own comfort and our own ego. That you would show us deeper and further into the story in which we've been born, the story in which we've been called to go and make disciples, to bring healing and renewal in the name of Jesus to our city. And Father, protect us from the smaller stories. Protect us from the distracting stories that are temporary and fleeting. But as a church, we may be committed to the life you've called us to live. The life that is of joy and fulfillment and purpose. Protect us and save us from a wasted life. That leads to emptiness and nothing. So Holy Spirit, be with us even right now. Just start to bring us further and deeper into Jesus. And we give this journey to you. In Jesus' name, amen.